0: Hello, and a very warm welcome to episode NX 1.1, Pilot. In the introduction, I made a tall claim about how I can't imagine anyone watching this series and ending up regretting it. I believe that anyone who watches this series, or any of the good episodes, which is by far the majority of them, is likely to feel better as a result. It's that simple in the same way As eating something that tastes great and is good for you also at the same time will make you feel better. It's not something that is up to chance really unless you are completely allergic to this particular food or this particular style of comedy and drama. The pilot episode opens with Joel, the main character, Joel Fleischman, on a plane heading to Anchorage Alaska. It introduces, in classic storytelling style, all the main points to know about the main character. When the scene fades in, we immediately hear Joel. He's the first voice we hear. We very quickly gather the fact that he is talkative, he's young, and from the dialogue we also learn that he's a doctor and that he is Jewish. And He is from New York and we learn the reason of why he's on the plane Which is that to finance his medical education He agreed to work for the state of Alaska for four years So now it's time to start paying that price. This pilot episode is constructed in a very clean way and in such a way that each act the teaser and each act build up to a certain point, and in each of the acts the end point also happens to be a physical place. So if we reverse engineer the story and try to figure out how the story was likely constructed, most likely then they may well have had this linear plan that could be summarized in just a set of a few places and points in the story where each act builds and you could also map them on a map and it's a very clean, clear and well-constructed story. Pete Gilliam zooming around the office seated on his chair he brags about his travels and how his wife is a Danish model, and so on. And he returns to his desk and he again dabs at his nose with a handkerchief. It must be cocaine. After Joel's suspicions have been placated, we get to see that bus ride. It's a long bus ride. But technically it is a bus ride from Anchorage. Before we hear the woodpecker, and before Joel hears the woodpecker, he's looking down this road, this paved road, and it's somewhat wet, so there has been rain at some point. To me, this is just a refreshing sight. Simple moments like this appeal to me. Sometimes I wonder if I'm in a minority and I wonder how many people enjoy these moments. But for example, to me, this is a very relaxing thing to watch. Joel wondering about his situation without any dialogue going on or without us specifically hearing Joel's thoughts we just see him take a look around and we get to do the same and you can, you know, kind of smell the forest and that wet smell of the road so here that storytelling line has taken Joel first from New York across the continent to Anchorage, Alaska and then on the bus to this bus stop after a long bus ride and the whole story can be mapped around that and if we were only now constructing the story it would come quite naturally this way and to me it's interesting to think of it in reverse like this that if you are writing a story you can with some stories even just do a line of the places where they go to and certain events may already be associated in your mind with those places. So this is one thing to consider if not sure how to proceed with some story. The characters do after all need to get from one place to another and sometimes the journey can be either an important part of the story or the main part of the story. Ed is a great character and I can't imagine him having been played by any other actor Darren Burroughs was able to bring something to that role that I don't think could have been there, that specific great thing, if it had been anyone else. The choices they ended up making are so great and so right. There still has not been any character elsewhere in entertainment that would have that same quality. I don't want to try to define it too much. It will become evident as we go on. It's as much as was there. As again, as with many of these stories and many of these characters, what isn't there, what reactions Ed doesn't have to people and situations. It feels good to see characters who are mainly content, mainly in a good place in their lives and in their minds and hearts. The song that Ed settles on is Richard Berry's "Louie Louis, Louis which Ed describes with the words R&B classic, rhythm and blues classic. This is already an indication of the variety of music that will be part of this series. First there's of course the soundtrack music that we heard already up to this point, And it featured instruments from different parts of the world and different types of instruments. And then there was a reference to rap and now we are hearing rhythm and blues. During this scene we also get the first indication of Ed's wide interests in the areas of pop culture. Here the association is first music, then he refers to a doctor on the radio, then he refers to the TV series Saint Elsewhere as he reels off some medical emergency dialogue. Joel is definitely starting to panic here, he is not used to this kind of setting and he is freaking out, surely because there are no people around and it's not anything like a city he is definitely a New Yorker, as established early on and we might as well say the words, a neurotic New Yorker maybe New York got the new from neurotic, just kidding I like that we get to experience this car ride down this forest road, there's some almost point of view shots over Joel's shoulder as we go down the road. Then we see Joel drive past a mailbox and back up and take that side road. I just like these normal settings and normal situations, yet when I say normal, they aren't really normal in a lot of entertainment. A lot of entertainment, a lot of art, skips over these scenes that give the texture of life to stories. They could technically gloss over this car ride even by showing just Joel arrive where he's now driving and saying, wow that was a strange car ride, what was that all about or something like that. Mr. Minifield has a satellite dish The weather is sunny, there are blue skies, there's sunshine. I just love the ordinariness of this. And there's a globe. All of these things are saying something about Maurice. They're coloring in who he is. He may appear like someone you wouldn't expect that from, but he has wide interests. The globe is one indicator of that. And of course, when we think about the fact that he has been in space, As is mentioned during the scene in the dialogue, well, Maurice has seen that globe, this planet, from space. So, not a shallow character. Maurice is another character who is such a gift to the viewer. Barry Corbin does such a great job playing this character and gives it so much of his own thing that I wouldn't ever want to see anyone else play this character. He made it so his own, and I would positively defy anyone to finish watching even the first season and hating him. I don't think it's possible to hate this character, even though there are aspects of his character that may, after all, give rise to some understandable aversion in many people. He has opinions and views that we aren't meant to be always sympathetic with. That's not what they are doing here. You may, but more than likely you won't be willing to sign your name under all of Morris's beliefs. But I still believe that anyone who watches, even the first season to see enough of the character, will like him. We're starting to see the Strong connection between him and Sicily. He isn't just a random person who came there and has a small niche. He is tightly connected with Sicily. Maurice also goes on to explain that the reason he started the radio station and newspaper was to be able to communicate. Communications, he says. And he adds if a man's got something to sell or something to say, he'd better get it out there. Well, apart from his exact phrasing, the idea is sound. If someone has something to say that they at least believe is worthwhile, yes, it is true, if they don't get it out there, then that worthwhile thing will go unsaid. That's not a selfish drive for anyone who keeps adjusting their course and examining their motives, for example. If someone only waits, for someone to give permission for them to get the message out there, then that day may never come, and most likely won't. This is the end of Act 1. So this is the point Act 1 needed to head to. Joel meeting Maurice, being introduced to Maurice in his home. So the physical place is Maurice's home. We went, during the first act, from Anchorage to Maurice. It's a clear, clean line. Maurice gives some history for the town. He says that two people called Cicely and Roslyn founded the town 97 years ago. And he adds, Rumor and innuendo notwithstanding, they were just good friends. That is Maurice's take on it. I like the neatness of how this particular story presents each character, in their logical place. That's not the only way to tell a good story, but in this first story it simply works, so there's no reason to do it in a more complicated way. We met Joel first on a plane, but then of course in a hospital. We met Maurice at his home, his lair, his den. Then we met Marilyn in the office where she hopes to work for Joel. She came looking for the job, so presumably Maurice was looking for an assistant for Joel. And here we meet Holling Vincour behind the bar, the owner of the bar. We don't learn his name yet, but we meet him at his place. And the story neatly takes us to all these places and the people associated with them. <laughs> This line line by Joel always makes me laugh when he yells loudly into the phone how he doesn't enjoy the prospect of spending the next four years of his life with a bunch of dirty psychotic rednecks. At that point the sentence gets cut off and he realizes what he's been saying. He takes a look at the people in the bar who are looking at him. Mostly just looking hurt or surprised. This is maybe the first indication in this series of something that I will be bringing up also later. Civil inattention. Civil inattention. Which is a concept that I am interpreting and defining as meaning basically that if someone does something that could be taken with offense. The other people present don't take offense at it. The situation could escalate from that if the others reacted pushing back or attacking back. Here, it was not necessary because the situation was self-containing. Joel was not going to attack the people. He said something very insulting about the people of Sicily and the people in that bar, but whereas in real life that may well have led to physical violence against Joel, here the patrons simply looked kind of wounded and continued their activities in the bar. That is a very valuable concept and something that I want to bring up also later in other situations in other episodes. It's not necessary for situations containing anger or even insults to escalate. There is a choice for the other people also regarding how they react or don't react. This is one of those things I mentioned in my introduction that here an important part of it is what doesn't happen. Some stories would take this scene in a different direction. They would have Joel yell this insult and then they would have someone, a big burly guy most likely, come up to Joel and start picking a fight with him. Joel isn't actually picking a fight, he was expressing his anger and frustration which has a legitimate basis after all. He was swindled by Pete Gilliam and the people in the bar have enough instinctive understanding, we can, for example, call it, to realize that it wasn't personal, that the guy is having a difficult moment. There's no need to react and escalate. (laughs) I like Joel wanting so hard to slam that receiver back onto its cradle on that payphone, but he just makes these movements and then places it down without wrecking the whole phone. Don't tell me you haven't had moments like that in real life when you want to do something like that, but you are of course also having some control over what you're doing. This series has all human emotions. Anger is something that everyone feels people who pretend that they never get angry at all, that they don't even have that emotion while are they in for problems in the future, because they are bottling up something. And like Carl Jung pointed out, if you do that, that feeling only gathers more energy under the surface. So if someone is playing all blissful all the time, either in private, things are very, very different. or at some point there will be an explosion in the person's future unless they start letting some of those emotions out in a controlled way. It doesn't have to be destructive for example David Lynch clearly benefits from expressing anger and violence in contexts of art. One of his best friends said in an interview that if David didn't have his art there would most likely be bodies by now And this friend of his then laughed after having said that, but it's quite likely true. And that doesn't mean that David Lynch is sick. It means he's the opposite of sick, because he knows which areas of life to put those emotions into, in his case, art, so it doesn't explode in real life. I also like how Joel is played here, his he panic and trying to breathe normally. Then Ed strolls in and asks Joel out of the blue, Have you heard the new Belle Bib Devoe? That's a band. Joel says, No, he has not heard the new Belle Bib Devoe. In the teleplay, in the script for this episode, which I have, I only have the pilot script, collecting all the rest would be a huge undertaking. I wish I could, but it hasn't been within my resources so far. But in the script for this pilot episode, which I do have, the reference was to Millie Vanilli, but it was changed for the final episode to Belle Bib De because of what happened with Millie Vanilli, the playback debacle because of the timing and because this change was made. I assume that is the reason. And I'm glad for it. I didn't really want Millie Vanilli mentioned in this episode. I like this line from Ed where he says to Holling, Maurice sent me in to see if you got the 16 cases of lemon-lime for the festival. First there's the reference to an upcoming festival, which is, again, setting something up for later in this episode. But Also, the fact that Ed says Lemon Lime and Holling uses the phrase Orange. Instead of using brand names, they use Lemon Lime and Orange. I wonder if at some point these were instead either Sprite or 7up and Fanta, for example. And we learn that there is an upcoming festival, a gathering of people in comedies i remember this from a shakespeare course how our lecturer or lecturer or teacher said that to simplify and generalize comedies end with weddings or comings together not all comedies of course there are other ways to end a comedy but in this case the festival is like a wedding in several ways if we think in storytelling terms it's a coming together of the community as an embodiment of unity putting the unity in community. community 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 no i let's move on and there are various comings together, so we can see it as a type of wedding in storytelling terms. It's not necessary to stretch this point, we can just call it a festival, but in fact there happen things that are like weddings, more than one coming together in a happy communal festive setting. This is the first act of simple kindness done by anyone in Sicily to Joel. And no matter how abrasive or immature Joel may be, he takes it like a mature person and he appreciates it, he thanks Holling. Some series seeing itself as more mature could turn this into some kind of scene where Joel responds with a sarcastic retort or doesn't take the hospitality like a mature person, but this is the mature reaction the civilized reaction. It might be unsurprising, I'm not saying it's surprising how he reacts, but again writers could take this in any direction they want. This is a world I want to live in. I like the parts of our world that are like this, and people who are like this. When I said in the introduction that Northern Exposure is the most mature series that I know, I was referring to things like this. The people can be immature. Joel definitely has many immature aspects. Many of the other characters have immature aspects, including Maurice. But the series itself and the overall way how things go is mature. And the reaction of the bar patrons to Joel's outburst about dirty psychotic rednecks, that was also mature. Joel also does the mature thing and apologizes for his outburst earlier. Holling understands the situation. Again, he could have taken it in a more negative way than he did. He could have decided that you don't insult people like that in my bar, get the hell out of here. He doesn't react that way. He understands, he has empathy for Joel's situation. So. In stories, there are all these elements that activate different parts of your brain and often good art is like flashing different things at different parts of your brain. This for your memory. This for your sense of nature. This for your sense of right and wrong. Here's music. Here's visually pleasing things. Here's something ugly. Here's something disagreeable. Here's something abrasive. Here's something kind. A lot of entertainment, a lot of art, engages fewer parts of your brain. Depending on what one wants from an experience, and depending on the nature of the story, that can be a good thing. But human beings do need all aspects of life to be somehow present in their own lives. Otherwise they get malnourished. Just as surely as if you're not getting enough nutrition, you're not getting enough of different things, you start losing your vitality and your joy of life, and your ability to make good choices in life, and live life well. (laughs) (laughs) Then we get introduced to Maggie O'Connell, and Joel has far from the best start for that relationship. He assumes this is an aggressive hooker, to use the word used in the series. But she is in fact his landlord, again to use the word that they use. Maggie is lighting the fire in the fireplace. Come on, it's a cabin with a fireplace in a beautiful forest setting. Fresh air, clean nature smells and a fireplace. And Maggie mentions that there's a wood-burning stove in the kitchen as well. Joe learns from Maggie that you need to chop the wood for the fireplace. But isn't that also an activity that can be easily imagined as part of an idyllic lifestyle? If you were living in a happy relationship, would this not be a great place to live? Better than anything, maybe. Of course, any place would be good with the right person. Maggie also mentions that there are clean linens in the closet. Again, come on. A fireplace, a beautiful cabin, and all the other stuff I mentioned, and clean linens. What's better than the feel and the smell of clean linens when you are in need of them? It's a neat and natural halfway point. The first day is done for Joel. It's been a long and challenging day. And he falls asleep. This is effective storytelling to have this scene happen on this small boat. It leaves Joel without any escape. There's barely room on the boat for the two of them. It's a narrow place, a bottleneck in the story, where Joel is confronted by, who is in storytelling terms, the antagonist. Maurice is the so-called villain of this story, in the story sense of being the person who stands in Joel's way, preventing Joel from getting what he wants. This is one of those storytelling ideas that are worth keeping in mind that for some scenes you want a wide environment, an open environment, and for others you want a narrow one. It can be interesting if it's flipped around and you do the unintuitive thing with those, but in many cases it is enough to do the more obvious thing, narrowing the story when there needs to be a confrontation without easy escape from it. It's been established early on that he doesn't drink often. By having him order a ginger ale for himself, At the same time as buying a scotch for the businessman on that night flight, we effectively and subtly learned something about Joel by contrasting him with the businessman who is having alcohol, whereas Joel is having just a ginger ale. We learned he's not a big drinker. Or at the very least, if we don't make that strong an assumption, at least he doesn't take every chance to drink. Also, earlier on, he ordered a seltzer, not an alcoholic drink. Which brings us neatly to the fact that those were also set up. Those two times when he ordered drinks. First the ginger ale, then the seltzer. They worked in the context of those scenes anyway, but they were also neatly laying the groundwork for this scene, where he does end up drinking heavily. So first, two times of him not having alcohol. Third time, yes. You have to give Maggie credit. She is at least listening. She is being there for Joel when he's having a difficult time. She could have chosen to be elsewhere. So even though they got off on the wrong foot, thanks to Joel, Maggie too is acting like a mature person. A civil person who understands that this is a guy not going through the easiest of times. She is present in that situation. There are many beer bottles on the wall. Oh, sorry. (laughs) There are many beer bottles on the table between the two of them. She has quite a horrible leather vest. Horrible to my taste. But I like even that. I like how people in this series dress as actual people. This is Joel's third day in Sicily. The first was his arrival, the second was that day when he ran to downtown Sicily and met with those patients. Had the confrontation with Maurice and ended up getting drunk. And it's his second morning here. He is in fact already living a life here. He has worked a bit. He has gone to sleep two times and awoken two times. He doesn't like it, but it's happening. Composer Peter Maxwell Davies described how that was how things were in the Orkneys, the Orkney Islands, where he lived for a large part of his life. When someone baked or something, they would also bring some for other people, so you might find on your doorstep a piece of cake in a box, or some bread, or something else. Here follows one of my favorite moments from the series. <laughs> Joel's freakout in the car is something I had never seen in any other series. It's a reaction that you can feel, and I believe that most of us have had some reaction like that. At least when we were younger. Let's not pretend we haven't. It's a very human reaction and the best part is that after it's over Joel notices that there are people right in front of that pickup truck where he freaked out and they're just looking at him. (laughs) Then follows the festival The figurative wedding or marriage scene where people come together communally and individually. There are several pairings of people in this final set of scenes. Maurice and Holling, in a deleted scene also the troubled couple, and Joel and Ed. To me this is an idyllic event. The weather is beautiful, sunny, it's warm, it's summer. You're outdoors, people are eating and drinking good things. And you see people of all ages, from kids to elderly people, in this crowd. Ed makes reference to a little cafe, a cup of espresso, the New York Times, and fresh hot bagels. Joel notices that Ed does know about bagels and asks how he does know, which opens the door to... Ed also showing that he is interested in films. This broadens what we know of Ed. Earlier he was associated with music. Now we know he's also a film guy. In the beautiful scene that concludes the story arc between Holling and Maurice for this pilot episode, Holling has this line. I got nothing to say to you, Maurice, but I'm saying it anyway. I can not say this is the case for sure, but this may well have been an echo of something said by composer John Cage, well known also for his writings and his thinking. What he said was, I have nothing to say and I am saying it, and that is poetry as I need it. The scene is beautifully written and performed. It would have to be a hard-hearted person who didn't also feel empathy for Maurice here. The final shot of the two of them is also moving in the background behind them, or rather in front of them as their backs are to the camera. In this shot is a mountain or mountain range and it has two peaks visually rhyming with Holling and Maurice. All the pieces are now in place for the series, we've met the main cast, a couple of them, Shelley and Chris without dialogue yet, but we now know the lay of the land, and this line took us through all these places to meet all these people, all of it elegantly constructed, and even though the hero didn't get what he wanted, it's a happy ending for us as the viewers. That's another example of the transformative power of comedy. It's a state of mind and a way of looking at things and presenting things. It doesn't have a one-to-one correspondence with what happens to the main character. You can have the main character or any of the characters or even all the characters going through bad stuff and ending up with outcomes they're not happy with And it's still possible to present things in a bright way. There is sunlight and there are good moments. That's optimism I can believe in. It's an adult way of looking at the world. We aren't expected to ignore the bad stuff happening but also the same with the good stuff. If Joel had been at the end of this story just feeling depressed in his cabin alone It would be a downer ending, if that had been what we fade out on. They didn't do that. Instead, we got the perfect ending in this festival.